today is from uh, Luke chapter 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who decided to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said to him, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, Lazarus in life manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. This might come in handy later. Well, more serious note. As a minister of the word, sometimes we have to say hard things. Sometimes we have to say things that might be upsetting, things that no one wants to hear. This morning is one of those times. I don't mean to upset anyone, but this simply has to be said. Here it is. I have not preached a sermon here since last year. <laughs> there, I said it. I won't apologize for it. You know that it needed to be said. So I've said it. In seriousness, uh, thank you to everyone who led the church in corporate worship last week. It's fine. Family and I were away visiting my in-laws and helping out there. Uh, thanks to Julia for leading the singing, the elders and their role for the service, and especially thanks to uh, Jerry Calandrilla for preaching the word. Uh, I was encouraged as I listened online to his first uh, sermon on a Sunday morning ever. Uh, the parable, 
The text was a parable of the dishonest manager, a difficult passage to understand, even more difficult to stay on topic once you do start to, to figure out uh, what it might be about. But he handled the text well, kept it simple, and kept the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center. So thank you. It is encouraging uh, to know that the church is, is being fed uh, and fed well uh, while on the way. Key question uh, that we have been seeing throughout the book of Luke as we've been working through it is how do you respond to Jesus? And your response to Jesus says more about you than it does about Jesus. I'm just going to put these down here. Otherwise I might think of something creative to do with them. Thinking of how to use those during the sermon. I really attempted to just cut this mic, but I should do that. Anyway, not how do you respond to bolt cutters on the pulpit. How do you respond to Jesus? Your response to Jesus reveals your heart toward God. In addition to your response toward Jesus, there are two other things in today's text. We'll see that reveal the nature of your heart, your attitude toward God's law, and your love of your neighbor. And all of those things, of course, are linked because love of God and neighbor are the greatest commandments of the law on which the rest of the commandments hang. So your heart toward your neighbor and your heart toward the law of God hang together. And of course, your heart toward God and your heart toward Christ are, are connected because Christ is God. And we're commanded to love and the God who gave us uh, law. So it's similar to First uh, John, the book of First John, which repeatedly has these uh, grounds that he's offering them for assurance. He's not giving it to them to uh, make them question themselves, but as evidence uh, to help build their assurance. The three tests are you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you receive the Christ. That's how you respond to Jesus. You love one another within the church, and you obey God's commands. You won't do any of those things perfectly. If you have a mustard seed of faith, a flicker of genuine love, or baby steps toward obedience, that's the miracle of God's grace at work in you. But the Pharisees, whom we meet in today's text, like the rich man in the parable that Jesus tells us about, they don't really even have that much. Uh, for a bit of context, last week, Jerry showed us Christ's call to use earthly capital for eternal purposes. So whatever gifts you've been given, steward those gifts for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Jesus concluded all of that teaching by saying, you cannot serve both God and money. So when the Pharisees, as it says here about this, can I get the, oops, that was in. Ah, there you go. Pharisees ridiculed him. They heard all these things. These things is what Jesus was just teaching. In particular, his teaching about money. They hear this, they think it's ridiculous. So they ridicule him. Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Nowadays, they'd be, quote, tweeting Jesus with some sick memes and gifs or something, and if you don't know what that means, count your blessings, but why do they think it's ridiculous? Well, Luke tells us right there, because they love money. They apparently think this idea that you can't serve both God and money is ridiculous. Serving God and money are perfectly compatible, the same thing. Handling money well simply means having more and more of it. If we serve God well, he'll give us more and more of it. Wealth is a sign of God's favor. The idea that you would be like the dishonest manager and handle your money in ways 
that maybe don't make a whole lot of sense from an earthly perspective because you've got your eyes on what's coming next. It's ridiculous to them. More to the point, their use of money, really their use of everything, has more to do with justifying themselves before men and glorifying God. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. I think this is often what greed is really about. It's how you can get sucked into it in a sort of backdoor sort of way. I don't know that that many of us are purely materialistic, just loving money because they want the comfort and luxury and big household expensive toys. As kids, most of us do suffer from the greedy gimmicks, right? But by the time we become adults, I think we develop more respectable motives behind our poor attitude toward money. We want to be respectable. We want to be respected. We want to look like we have everything together figured out. I think people are often afraid to ask for help for the same reason that others live for love of money. Wealth is respected and poverty is shamed. Just look at the way people look to billionaires for advice on things really outside of business and technology. Look to them for advice on ethics and politics and relationships and parenting even. Why? So we think, well, they've got life figured out, right? Why do we think they've got life figured out? There's an objective way to measure how how well someone is doing in life. That's their net worth. They have what we value. (coughs) What we want, they have. But do they have God's values? The latter part of verse 15 there says, What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It's kind of a sledgehammer verse, isn't it? Obviously, we don't take it in an absolute sense to say that whatever anybody happens to like, God automatically hates. But the world as a whole has a tendency to exalt abominations. Wealth is not an automatic indicator of wickedness. It's not that money itself is an abomination. But societies in general, whether it's first century Judea, 21st century United States, we tend to exalt, prove, aspire to abominable ways of living. In this case, love of money, serving money rather than God, or equating the service of money with the service of God, which makes sense. Your money is God, right? Failing to understand tension, failing to submit your earthly goods and stewardships to eternal kingdom purposes. People who live for themselves and do it well will have the world's respect and admiration. As long as they make donations just large enough to correct charities, no one can say that they don't care about the little guy. Pharisees were quite ostentatious about giving alms to the poor. God knows their heart. God knows who their real master was, the almighty dollar, or shekel, whatever it was. God's standards are not the same as the world's standards. That's the point. God does not judge the world according to how much earthly success or prestige or wealth or power you were able to accumulate for yourself. God's concern is the heart. And again, to clarify, Heart is evidenced in our words and actions to those who have eyes to see. 
But these are Pharisees. Jesus is not addressing just a, a group of secular businessmen. This isn't the Greater Galilean Chamber of Commerce. These, these Pharisees are religious leaders, a religious sort of sect or party or group, school of, of, of thought. And they happen to take God's standards as expressed in the Hebrew Scriptures very serious, seriously. These aren't the, the, might call them liberal Sadducees who compromised with Rome. These are Pharisees, Hebrew Bible-believing conservatives. How can Jesus say that these respectable, God-fearing, Bible-believing, devout Pharisees are following the standard of the world, seeking the exaltation and justification of men and not God? I think this would have been a major insult. And I think this is why Jesus, in the very next verse, pivots to talking about the role of Scripture. <coughs> All the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom was preached. Everyone is forcefully urged to enter it. If you're reading from the ESV, I think the footnote, which reads, is forcefully urged to enter into it, rather than forces, forces his way into it, I think it's the better translation. This is forcefully urged, strongly urged to enter the kingdom. I think it's the way uh, related words are used in other contexts, even by Luke. So, the Law and the Prophets here refer to the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't call it the Old Testament uh, because there wasn't a New Testament yet, right? It was, it was the only testament. And in addition to that, uh, the Sadducees, I mentioned them earlier, they only accepted what we call the Torah or the Law, the first five books of the Bible. So to refer to the whole body of scriptures, you need to say the, the title, uh, the Torah and the prophets and the writings were just the Law and the prophets short. So this is about Scripture. John, Jesus is saying that the Old Testament writings gave the divine standards, so to speak, until John the Baptist came. Now the kingdom of God is preached, and this is the divine standard which everyone is strongly, even forcefully urged to take, to take heed of. And notice that it's not law, it's news. The kingdom has come. Everyone is urged to enter in. That's all you need to do is, is hear this message, believe this news, and enter into the kingdom. This is the way to please God. What happens to the Old Testament then? If the law and prophets were until John, but now it's the gospel of the kingdom. Is the New Testament done? Well, as Jesus says famously in, in Matthew, and implies here, the law is fulfilled. That doesn't mean it's abolished. Look at his next sentence. This is great. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The dot there could be the tiniest little stroke of a pen that distinguishes two similar letters. The gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. The Old Testament points to the gospel of the kingdom which has come in Christ. Therefore, the Old Testament is not void. It points to Jesus Christ points to our need for Him, points to coming judgment and salvation, and it does help us learn what it means to follow Him. So it is, in that sense, upheld, and it just, I think that's why this next section is in place here. It's, it's the teaching on divorce and remarriage. I don't think it's random, uh, as if Luke is just stitching stuff together that's unrelated. 
think this is a case study in how to read the law and how the Pharisees had failed to read the law. Jesus taught on this same topic of divorce and remarriage in more detail on the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, rather, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, a section called the Antitheses. You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, and that is pretty much what we just read about divorce from Luke. God's point, he's quoting Deuteronomy when he says in Matthew, he first said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. The point in Deuteronomy is to regulate the reality of divorce in context doesn't approve of or commend divorce, but does regulate what happens in the case of divorce. Uh, you need to give a certificate of divorce and some other regulations. Don't want to get into too much detail on this because it's already a difficult passage to, to, to put together, but I understand Deuteronomy to grant certain protections to the divorced woman by way of regulating what happens in the case of divorce, which will happen because of our parts but many Jewish teachers, even among the Pharisees, took this in Deuteronomy as permission to divorce their wives for whatever reason. They read it to say, as long as I give her a certificate of divorce, it doesn't matter. Perfectly fine. And the assumed reason here in Luke, and probably the predominant reason in that culture at that time, for a man to divorce his wife was so that he could marry another woman. Today, marriage as an institution was called into question. Back then, marriage was much more normative. You have writings saying things like, a man is only half a man unless he has a wife, so unless your wife was unfaithful, you're not going to send her packing without another one sort of lined up to go, so to speak. Pretty miserable way to put it. That's how they were. The point is that these Pharisees are, despite their high view of Scripture, quote-unquote, simply using it to justify whatever they want to do, to excuse mistreatment of their wives. And that's why we don't see any mention here of exceptions to this strict view on divorce and remarriage, just as a sidebar, based on other passages like Matthew and like 1 Corinthians 7, I do believe there are cases where divorce is permissible, and that if the divorce was permissible, uh, so remarriage can be in some circumstances. Uh, it's just not included here because Jesus' point is just to use this as a case study for how the uh, Pharisees are misreading the law to justify themselves. The Pharisees missed the point of the Old Testament's teaching. Love of neighbor. Missed the second great commandment of the whole law, right? They missed its ultimate fulfillment in Christ because they're rejecting and ridiculing Christ. They looked at the Word of God and found not a message of God's salvation and really even missed the record of God's moral standards because they were just looking for something they could use to justify themselves. With all of that in the background, we then come to the parable, a familiar parable to many of you of the rich man and Lazarus. In this parable, as you heard earlier, we meet a rich, successful, happy man, someone everybody would want to be, and a poor, miserable, diseased beggar who lies in the street at the rich man's gate. 
We can imagine the rich man as he goes to and from his home, walking through the gate each day, walking right by this man who's just lying there in pain, in misery. Only the dogs pay attention to him, and these are not snuggly, fluffy, house pet dogs. These are feral dogs that roam the streets, scavenge, scavenging for, for scraps of food and licking up whatever odious fluids are oozing from this poor man's diseased body. <coughs> Dr. Uh, Paul Brand, the late surgeon, who was a, a Christian known for his work with leper colonies, actually the first to recognize that the real problem with leprosy is not damage to tissue but to nerves, numbs the nerves that cause pain, and so people would repeatedly injure themselves without knowing it, even just walking might turn an angle and not know it, and so uh, people lose limbs because of that. He writes how he would have a patient maybe wake up to find that rats had been gnawing on their hands and, and fingers. The disease, by the way, is now considered very treatable. I don't want to scare the children here. Not feared as much now as it was even in Dr. Brand's day, but I think that's a better picture of how we might understand Lazarus and how he might have been seen. He's diseased. Nobody wants to catch the disease. Uh, they would have assumed if you are diseased, it's probably punishment for some kind of sin, so we don't want to associate with the sinner. No one wants to be near him except for these animals who are just in a disgusting way, really exploiting his misfortune. Well, they both die, and the fortunes are reversed. The angels take Lazarus to Abraham's side. Don't forget, the dog of the Pharisees here, and to them, Abraham's a big deal. They're Abraham's children. They're on Team Abraham. But the rich man doesn't fare so well. As Jesus says, he is tormented in Hades. This is a theme common in, in Luke, in the New Testament, a great reversal. Uh, Jesus doesn't immediately say why each man went where they did, but we can piece it together as we do. What strikes me about the whole conversation is Abraham uh, and uh, the rich man start uh, conversing here, is that um, the rich man, even as he is enduring the consequences of his sinful life, is still not repentant. Here's what I mean. He expects Lazarus to come and serve him. I'm in hell, and Lazarus has been exalted to the presence of Abraham himself, and I'm still entitled to be served by this man who was a lowly beggar in life. He is beneath me. Send him to give me water. Ow. This just and eternal punishment for my unrepentant sin really stinks. Please make Lazarus come and be my water boy. Give me some quality H2O. Abraham's not having it. He gives two reasons. First, you had your good things in life. Lazarus had bad things. Now it's his turn to have good things. And you have torment. This is not some kind of weird uh, Marxist sort of system. It's not that wealth is automatically wicked and poverty automatically righteous. God's final judgment is not just a matter of redistributing the wealth, overthrowing the plutocrats, any such thing. I actually think Abraham's being a little bit snarky here. I know there's some tenderness, he calls the rich man child, but you had your good things. 
You had them, all right. You had them all to yourself. They were yours and yours alone. You did not share anything with the poor man at your gate. Said he desired the scraps from the table. It doesn't say he even got that much. First John three seventeen. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't, right? The point is that the man's actions or inactions in life are what led him to where he is. He made his bed, so to speak. He kindled these flames in life, log by log. Second, besides that, there's a chasm between them, as Abraham says. Uh, there's no way for the rich man to go to Lazarus, or Lazarus to go to the rich man. This tells us, as kind of sidebar, there's something about the finality of judgment. There is no switching sides after death. There's no time to change your mind. And this guy shows no signs of repentance anywhere. Since repentance itself is a gift of grace, I don't know that there is any possibility of switching sides, even without the chasm. But if Richie Rich here is any indication, the lost won't repent, even if it was too late. Even if it wasn't too late. So, Uncle Moneybags here, I don't know what to call him. Lazarus has a name, it's just called call Rich. Uh, he has a second request. And he still wants to make Lazarus kind of his errand boy. He wants him to play Jacob Marley, right? Whether he goes to Christmas past or something. Uh, tonight he wants his brothers to be visited by this one spirit. Without his visit, they cannot hope to show him the path of treasure. Send him to my brothers. Warn them about the fire and about the life they're living. Some people didn't care for Lazarus in life. He was lying in the street dreaming about their measly table scraps. You're going to listen to him now? Abraham, of course, he says, no. I'm going to give up on trying to flip through there. But, uh, Abraham says no. And why? Because they have the word of God. God himself, through Moses, through the prophets, God's already spoken. Your brothers already know everything that they need to know. There's no new information. Love God. Love your neighbor. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. If they're already rejecting the word of God himself, no new revelation from beyond the grave is going to convince them. Maybe you're having the same idea as Richie Rich at this point. Uh, surely wouldn't, wouldn't a supernatural phenomenon wake them up and, and convince them? Wouldn't they repent if a ghost came and told them, hey, Repent, or it's the flames for you. <laughs> Never mind that this is coming from a guy who's actually experiencing the flames and still shows no signs of repentance. So Abraham again says no. If they don't listen to the word of God, even a resurrection won't convince them. Richie here just had a haunting in mind, right? Abraham makes it even stronger. Not even if Lazarus comes back to life will they believe who reject God's word. Coincidentally, as you may be aware, in John's gospel, someone named Lazarus did come back to life, and the religious leaders didn't believe. They said, what are we going to do? Jesus keeps bringing people back to life. Everyone's going to believe in him. 
You think? I mean, it's like saying this guy keeps doing hip replacement surgeries. People are going to think he's an orthopedic surgeon. So they plot to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Maybe there's no coincidence that they have the same name because this Lazarus did come back from the dead and religious leaders, Pharisees, didn't believe. See, the issue with people is not that we lack evidence. We are not perfectly logical creatures. We just need to be presented with sufficient proof, some argument, somebody make a case for obedience, and we'll do it because we're rational. We are sinners in rebellion against God. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. This is the problem with the Pharisees, which they share with the rich man and his brothers. It's not that they lack high moral standards, not that they lack a high view of Scripture, not that they lack a high view of God. They have these things, at least on paper. The problem with the rich man, the problem with the Pharisees, and too many times the problem with me, you, is that we, by nature, tend to live to justify ourselves. And even whatever grace God gives us, we use it as a tool for our own justification. We see that in the passage with money. Does God give us, in His common grace, money? We can either say, praise God, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, or we can say, the rain must have fallen on me because I'm just. We can use what God has graciously given us to graciously bless others, or we can use it to impress others and justify ourselves in their sight. Or God gives us, in His Word, gives us the law, reveals to us His perfect standard of righteousness. We need to hear that. We need to learn from that above all else. That we fail to measure up to that standard, right? We need to know that we need a Savior. But what do we do with it instead? We try to use the law to justify ourselves, whether by trusting in our own obedience, or just violently misreading the law, like the Pharisees did in the case of divorce, looking for loopholes and dodges to make the law look like whatever we are already wanting to do. And even the Gospel the message of the death and resurrection of Christ himself we in our sin can abuse. We can look at it as if Christ, his death, merely wipes the slate clean and makes it possible now for me to save myself. No, Jesus is our righteousness. His resurrection is our justification. The gospel is not instructions for you to save yourself. It is the message that Christ offers Salvation for sinners freely simply come to him in faith. There truly are, as has been said, two ways to live. You can try to live to justify yourself. And ironically, you saw with the Pharisees, the parable here, this leads to even more sin. They fail to love their neighbor because self-justification makes your neighbor either into a tool or an obstacle in your quests for self-righteousness. You might try to impress your neighbors to justify yourself before them. You might tear down your neighbor if she's making you look bad. You might avoid your neighbor if he's not the kind of person righteous people are seen with. 
to actually love your neighbor? Is there a self-justifying way to do that? To love one another is a response to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. As John said in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. We are called to live as those who have already received righteousness as a gift of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see the order there, the logic there? There is no condemnation. We have been set free from the law, sin and death. The law can't do it. And yet, he has set us free, condemned sin, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We walk not according to the flesh, not according to our own efforts, but according to the Spirit's working in us. The gift of righteousness in Christ Jesus sets us free from self-justification, sets us free for grateful obedience. Everything turns on that question I mentioned at the beginning. How do you respond to Jesus? Do you trust in Him and His work as your only hope in life and death? If not, or if you're not sure, or if you would like to know more about what that means, feel free to Grab me or one of the elders or somebody after the service would love to, to discuss it. Don't you think through what that means? But if you have trusted in Christ, this is a call for us as a church and as a... I can't speak this morning. This is a call for us as a church and as individuals to remember why we say that we put Christ first. What it means to put Christ first. Because only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to save us and transform us. The only way to be who we were really meant to be as a church, as individuals, is to live in the light of the reality that this isn't ultimately about who we are. This is about who Jesus is. The Word become flesh, our Savior, our Lord, our perfect, spotless righteousness. We look to Him, our souls the reward, and the glory of the Lord.